Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferrans. United Auto Workers reach a deal at Ultium's battery plant in Ohio. The potential cost of a UAW strike next month. And today on the show, the News Guild on that Kansas newspaper raid and what the Labor Lab is doing to shine a light on those union busters. Welcome to the Tuesday, August 29th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including... Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with a frequent contributor to America's workforce, and that would be John Schloys, who is president of the News Guild, affiliated with the Communication Workers of America. Website is newsguild.org. John has been president for about four years now. And the number one issue we're going to talk about on the show today is that raid a couple weeks ago in Kansas. It was a newspaper raid. Marion County Police raided a local newspaper alleging criminal acts. John says it's an extreme, extreme overreach of law enforcement and a blatant violation of First Amendment protections against police raiding or interfering in free press activities. Now, keep in mind, the News Guild does not represent the workers at that newspaper. It's a weekly, a small publication. There's only about 2,000 people that live in Marion County. However, they issued a joint statement with the Writers Guild of America East, who also represent journalists, not just there. But you know what? An injury to one is an injury to all. Now, the News Guild is still monitoring the situation, but uh, John says the police need to be held accountable for their illegal actions. And from what I've been reading, the local prosecutor there, and this person might be charged with what they call prosecutorial misconduct, and they've dropped the charges. And the mother of the publisher, 98, 99 years of age, She passed away from all the stress that weekend. Horrible story. Horrible story. We'll also talk about organizing. Also, uh, TVO went on strike last week. Now, TVO is a public broadcaster in Ontario. And the News Guild represents about 75 folks in education and journalism. And they're striking over low wages and uh, precarious work conditions. So John's going to be our first guest on the show, and then we're going to go to the state of Montana. And welcome back to the show, Bob Funk. Now, Bob runs the Labor Lab, laborlab.us. Got to check this out. They have a uh, union-busting tracker, which basically tracks anti-union persuader consultants across the United States. Now, Here's the significant part of today's interview. The U.S. Department of Labor just published a rule requiring that all 
Federal contractors disclose their work with anti-union consultants and law firms in what they call LM-10 forms. The rule more or less explains that greater transparency for workers about who their employers hire would allow workers to make informed decisions about union participation. Kind of shed a light on what's going on with a respected company. And this rule went into effect yesterday. So uh, Bob is going to talk about that and also give us a little background on what Labor Lab is all about. LaborLab.us. And now a brief look into the world of labor. The segment brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management, offering fixed income, real estate, and equity investment options to clients nationwide. You can find more at BoydWatterson.com. Altium Cells LLC and the UAW have reached a tentative contract agreement to give raises of more than 20% to workers at Altium's battery plant. That's the one located in Warren, Ohio. The agreement, which will have to be ratified by UAW members at Altium, would become effective this week. It comes as the two parties continue to negotiate an inaugural contract for Altium workers. Now, Altium, mind you, is a joint venture between General Motors and LG Energy Solutions. Altium said in a statement, providing this wage increase is the right thing to do for our team members, all of whom contribute so much to Altium Cell's growth and success. And this is just the first step. We continue to bargain in good faith with the union to reach a comprehensive contract for our employees, including a final wage scale. Now, Altium said the interim wage increase would be retroactive with active current hourly employees receiving back pay for every hour work since December 23rd of last year. Any current employees who have worked at the company since that time can receive payment of $3,000 to $7,000. That's based on hours worked. UAW said in a statement that the breakthrough agreement will raise wages by 3 to $4 an hour. Sean Fain, president of the UAW, said in a statement, after months of public pressure and worker organizing, Altium was forced to take a first step toward economic justice for the workers who are powering GM's electric vehicle future. When we fight hard, we can win big. And we're not done fighting for standard-setting wages and benefits at Ultium and beyond. Now, this company has come under fire for what the union calls high-risk and low-paid jobs at that Warren plant. Last month, the union released a white paper detailing health and safety issues at the plant, noting workers start at $16.50 an hour. And could make about 20 bucks per hour. This is after seven years. Well, under this agreement, production operators would start at 20, go up to 21 after six months or 1,000 hours worked. In a statement, UAW local 1112 shop chairman Josh Ayers, who represents the workers at Ultium, said, This interim wage increase is only the first step as we progress toward a fair and comprehensive contract for the dedicated UAW Local 1112 membership as a result of the bargaining process. He added 
that the committee is still hard at work in bargaining working conditions, health and safety, seniority rights, and addressing other issues raised by the membership. That white paper that I reference was uh, pretty specific on the working conditions there. Since opening, Ultium's plant has been cited multiple times by OSHA. The report includes a rundown of those OSHA citations as well as firsthand accounts from workers of injuries they suffered. Among them, a quality inspector had to flee her station when toxic fumes filled her work area. She also noted she's blowing black stuff out of her nose every day after work. Then a production maintenance tech was sprayed in the face with toxic electrolyte when a machine failed to alert workers that there was a defect in one of the battery cells. And lastly, a former worker at the plant's production site saw so many hazards that he decided to leave the company after only six months. Yeah, we got some problems there. And again, this is a step in the right direction. I mean, 20 bucks an hour for conditions like that, <laughs> we got to do a whole lot better, whole lot better. You know, yesterday I was talking about the uh, fact that 97% of UAW members, this is collectively at Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, have said, you know what, we're ready to strike if we don't get a new contract by September 14th. It's reported that the UAW strike fund now totals over $825 million, meaning that the union could strike all three automakers for 12 weeks before that fund is exhausted. Meanwhile, the Anderson Economic Group estimates that a work stoppage by the nearly 150,000 UAW workers at the big three would cost more than $5 billion after 10 days. Deutsche Bank estimates that a strike would cost each effective automaker about 400 to $500 million per week of production. Moreover, many smaller parts manufacturers and suppliers may not be able to survive a prolonged strike. Let, let's hope that doesn't happen. That's going to be horrible. Last week, Duke University graduate students overwhelmingly won their vote to unionize, affiliating with SEIU. I stand corrected. I assumed that was going to be the UAW, but it's the service employees. Now, once certified, it will be one of the largest unions in North Carolina, which, by the way, is a right-to-work state with only 2.8% union density, and thus they will join only a handful of other graduate student unions in the South. The win comes after months of union busting by the university, including attempts to deny graduate students employee status. To the uh, grad students at Duke University, another premier school costing students a whole lot of money, taking on grad students with union busting. Just amazing what's going on here. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, John Schloys, president of the News Guild. 
This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at I-F-P-T-E dot O-R-G. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the U.S. We are the USW. The, the United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SPS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Real simple, AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers, OH.AFT. .org is their website. Before we get to a John Schloys on behalf of the News Guild, I want to kind of set the scene for what we're going to talk about in our first segment on the show today. This happened a couple of weeks ago in Marion, Kansas, where four local police officers and three sheriff's deputies decided to raid the office of the Marion County Record newspaper, the home of its co-owners, Eric Meyer, and his 98-year-old mom, Joan Meyer, along with the home of Marion's vice mayor, Ruth Herbel. Ruth was 80. They seized computers, cell phones, and other equipment. Joan Meyer was unable to eat or sleep after the raid. A day later, she collapsed and died in her home from all the stress. The search warrant alleged there was probable cause to believe the newspaper, its owners, or the vice mayor, had committed identity theft and unlawful computer acts against a restaurant owner. However, the magistrate in the case, Laura VR, appears to have issued that warrant without any affidavit of wrongdoing on which to base it. And the charge now has been dropped. This is a crazy situation, and that's why we decided to bring John Schloys to the table today to talk about this Kansas newspaper raid. John, 
John has been president of the News Guild for the last four years, and I know he is not happy, along with many journalists in the country today and around the world. John Schloys, welcome back to America's Workforce. I'm, I would imagine you were pretty stunned when you heard this story unfold, weren't you? I definitely was, because it's so rare that you would have uh, police raid the home of, like, essentially what is a very small newspaper. This is a weekly newspaper in a rural, very small town where everyone knows everyone else. Uh, and the police came in and they basically raided the offices and the home, taking computers, taking like the Alexa speaker. I mean, taking all kinds of stuff. Um, and it's it's a complete overreach of of the local police here who are basically trying to just intimidate what is otherwise, uh, even though it's small, it uh, reports a lot of local news um, for that community. And they're trying to shut it down, trying to quiet it up. This even got the attention of the White House. Uh, they didn't. They just. They were just monitoring the situation. And as I indicated, the the charges were dropped here. But uh, there's got to be another step here. And and there's a person that died from the stress involved. I mean, this this is just like you said, overreach. And I know you issued a joint statement with the Writers Guild of America East, who also represent journalists. Can you uh, can you reference that? I mean, you touched on it briefly here, but. Maybe you can give us give us some specifics on on how your what your position is on this whole situation. Yeah, so for us, the the News Guild and and with the Writers Guild, we call uh, uh, and are basically demanding that the Marion County Police Department be held accountable. So, uh, you know, I think our, our statement was our first step. Um, the next step is actually to try and maybe get the state involved in looking at wrongdoing by the police in violating the First Amendment rights of the folks at the newspaper, because, you know, in the United States of America, we have right at the top of the list of the Bill of Rights, we have uh, a protection for the freedom of the press uh, and the support of a press, knowing that journalists, one of their jobs that journalists do is to hold power to account. Uh, and if we don't have them, we don't have democracy. So this looks like a pretty clear in a situation where you've got the, the recently uh, uh, brought in police chief of Marion County uh, come in and basically uh, have a, a history with Kansas City that the newspaper was looking into uh, with some questionable activities there. And then uh, him being really upset that his history was looking into it. So he went and found a different issue to then create a situation where they could raid uh, this home in this office. Uh, it looks like it's completely outside of the bounds of what uh, what would be appropriate behavior uh, by the police, which is you can't in- interfere with the activities of journalists. Mm-hmm. What would you like to see happen to resolve this situation? Uh, I mean, you, obviously, you can't bring back somebody's life. That's tragic in itself here. But uh, penalties, jail time, what do you see happening, John? Well, I mean, I think that from um, uh, a criminal side, I think that it would be good if the state looked into whether or not any laws were broken by the police department. And if they were, I think that fines need to be assessed against the police department, including corrective behavior. One thing that we see in a lot of police departments, and and we saw this um, after the murder of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis, was that police departments tend to overreact and they don't have proper training to understand that they cannot for instance, prevent like a videographer or a reporter with a camera 
uh, coming close to report out the news if it's happening like in the street. And I think that even in small towns, you've got this lack of sort of media understanding of the law by a lot of police officers. So I'd like to see an investigation and I think potential uh, penalties, including fines there. And then, you know, I, I, I think that the, the newspaper itself has the potential to file its own civil complaint over the death of, of Joan. I mean, that was just terrible. And it was clear that it happened right after the raid. They go in and they, they um, uh, disturb a 98-year-old woman's life. Uh, she's, you know, there's even this, this really tragic security footage, you know, with her holding her walker and just, you know, yelling at them to get out of her house. And it's terrible to see. I think they've got a civil complaint potentially where they could file a lawsuit over, over the trauma there. Without question, this story hit a nerve. And you know, when I first saw it, I thought of you. I said, I got to get John on the show to talk about this. And then after that, the charges were dropped. And I hope they go after that magistrate who served as prosecutor in this case, because uh, I think that person should probably probably taken a deep dive into these charges and say, wait a minute, you know what this is going to cause. And it did cause an uproar. I mean, it made all the networks. You, you've you got to be, I guess, happy to some concern that it got national, in some cases, international publicity for what happened there. Um, don't, don't you feel pretty good about that part of it? <laughs> that is a really good thing because the thing that we've lost in the United States over the last decade is local journalists. I mean, we've lost, you know, at this point, about 30,000 newspaper employees uh, over the last 10 years. It's a staggering number. That's almost half of all newspaper employees. It is half of all newspaper employees from 10 years ago. And it really has impacted folks in these like small town publications uh, like the Marion County uh, daily or Marion County record, because you don't have, uh, enough local journalists covering local businesses, covering the county courts, covering the city council meeting. So even though this is a terrible event uh, and a complete overreach by the magistrate and by the police, you have a situation where you said it raises the, the profile of small town local journalists who are the heart and soul of a lot of these communities by telling people what's happening. Yeah, good point. Really good point here. You want to make a connection to this and uh, what's going on in Pittsburgh with the uh, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette? I-, I can't believe this strike is still going on. It's uh, it's going to be a year this October. And apparently there's been some police interference with the picketers. Can you tell us what's going on there, John? Yeah, it's kind of been uh, up and down and nonstop and from different jurisdictions, right? Because um, while the Post-Gazette's in Allegheny County and the city of uh, the Pittsburgh City Police or the, the main group uh, we deal with when we're in Pittsburgh. We also go to Butler County, which is just north of Pittsburgh, because uh, the Butler um, Eagle is uh, a publication that's uh, separate and independently owned from the folks who own the Post-Gazette. They're the ones printing the scab newspaper. So twice a week on Wednesdays and on uh, Saturdays, they print um, for the Post-Gazette. And we've been up to these picket lines, you know, we'll have picket lines, you know, in the winter, I mean, you know, it could be down into the single digits and we're on a picket line, you know, trying to slow down trucks. And um, I was, you know, we were there, we had a a good picket line of about 30 people up in Butler. It was a warm summer night. um, So it was not as cold as it was in the winter, but warm summer night. And we, um, we had a picket line. We slowed down the trucks that were coming in to pick up the Post-Gazette, the SCAB publication. Uh, during our strike, 
And, you know, about four or five uh, police officers showed up from, from Butler itself, tried to break up our picket line, which was legal, um, and then uh, failed and then called in reinforcements. So called in state troopers who then also came in and threatened um, peaceful protesters, pe- peaceful strikers with, um, with arrest. They threatened us with arrest. And, and it, it's, it's kind of gotten to this point where it's like, who are the police actually working for? And we've had this long history in this country of police breaking up picket lines and breaking strikes. Um, but at the end of the day, the people who are actually actively violating the law, it's the Butler Eagle. It's the Post-Gazette, and there are a litany of violations to what is the National Labor Relations Act and other things like filing like a trespassing uh, civil complaint against one of our reporters on strike, uh, a reported list of just ridiculous um, violations of the law, and yet they face no consequences, and then the police come and harass and break up our strike lines. That's amazing. What about negotiation they just don't want to talk they're, they're they're you said that they're still publishing they're using scabs right now so no bargaining going on then yeah they're using scabs you know there's probably from our estimates about 60 reporters a lot of them are, are folks who have uh decided to join in the middle of the strike you know those positions are temporary and as soon as the strike ends they they could lose those positions um because uh, they cannot actively replace permanently uh, employed uh, strike strikers uh, after the strike is over. Um, but it also just sends the signal that like you're an embarrassment as a journalist. You know, we represent about 18,000 journalists uh, in North America. And uh, as for me, like, I know who you are. I know that you're a scab. Uh, your reputation is, is dirt uh, in this industry. If you scab uh, and you cross a picket line, I mean, it's a complete embarrassment. But they are putting out um, a paper twice a week and then uh, a, an online publication. They have been doing it since the beginning. It's pretty bad. I mean, you know, when you go to, you know, a county event uh, and you're a scab reporter and we've got the folks from the Pittsburgh Union Progress. This is our proud strike publication at unionprogress.com. When you when you got a reporter from the PUP, the Pittsburgh Union Progress, and then a scab reporter, that scab reporter just has its head down, looks really like nervous, doesn't ask any questions, and then writes a terrible story for the Post-Gazette. So um, it's pretty embarrassing behavior. But yeah, they, they are continuing to do it, and negotiations have not moved anything. The company is just still sticking by its, its law-breaking attitude of, we agree that we think our best proposal was from 2017, and we're not interested in moving. That's the, the, the pinnacle of bad faith bargaining. From six years ago, jeez. What about uh, advertisers? They, they can't be happy with uh, what's going on with management over there. Are they pulling out of the, uh, the newspaper? We had a lot of uh, advertisers pull out of the newspaper, so it's it's pretty lightweight in terms of what you actually see in the publication. A lot of folks, you know, have moved over to the strike publication, the the pup, as I said, as we call it, because it's pup, uh, Pittsburgh Union Progress, the pup. Um, but a lot of advertisers have moved over there, and a lot of people have dropped out. You know, they're still making money from uh, advertising uh, with uh, with. Uh, um, um, funeral homes, you know, and obituaries. But we had actually had the county sheriff, you know, so here's the one positive for the police. The county sheriff dropped their contract uh, with the Post-Gazette, which I was under the impression was about $450,000 a year. Uh, and so they dropped uh, their contract with the Post-Gazette and don't advertise over there anymore either. So we're losing, they're losing a lot of advertisements. Their reputation is, is destroyed in a, in a Pittsburgh uh, town like Pittsburgh, where it's very union strong. Very strong. Yeah. 
John Schloys joining us on our live line today. He is president of the News Guild, which is affiliated with the Communication Workers of America, one of our national sponsors on the show, newsguild.org. We're going to talk about uh, some organizing, that and more later in the show. We're going to go to the state of Montana, check in with Bob Funk, who heads the Labor Lab. Back in a few minutes. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AF. GE.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Iron Workers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWaterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at USW.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity... Just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency. You can find more at ulagency.org. Let's go back to our live line. Rejoin John Schloys on behalf of the News Guild, CWA, newsguild.org. I want to talk about organizing, but first, TVO went on strike August 21st. Apparently, they're a public broadcaster, which is kind of surprising. Their public broadcasters are usually, usually union-friendly. Uh, what's going on here, John? And this is in uh, Ontario, right? Yeah, so it's just just north of the, the border for us. Um, the News Guild, we represent uh, folks in Canada as well um, who have long been part of the News Guild, you know, stretching back to our, our uh, beginnings uh, 90 years ago. Uh, and TVO is sort of like the PBS of the province of Ontario. So you think a lot of like education reporting and then journalism that kind of follows the current events from the previous week and then tries to go deep on bigger issues. So a lot of people who, who grew up in like Toronto, for instance, um, grew up with TVO kids and, and watched these, um, you know, watch, watch cartoons, watch these educational programs. It was a big part of their life. Uh, and it still is. And during the pandemic, uh, our folks at TVO, we represent about 75 folks there. 
um, really helped educators when things moved virtual because they had a lot of documentaries that they had in their in their lineup and were able to provide a lot of content uh, for folks as they were virtual during the pandemic. And the the province there. Um, which mostly funds TVO, it does some of its own fundraising, but the province uh, has been very reluctant to um, actually provide uh, meaningful wage increases to keep up with inflation. So they're focused more on like 1%, 2%. In fact, there was a law passed in Ontario a few years ago that was overturned uh, by the high courts there. But the law basically restricted public um, positions, public employees from getting a raise of more than 1%. So this is the the sort of conservative, but not conservative in the way Americans think about conservative political forces, but conservatives in Ontario that are more right-leaning, uh, the Ford administration up there, uh, that uh, is interested in defunding uh, public health care, public education, and public journalism, which is a big part of how people get their, their news and education in Ontario. Very sad. So uh, I understand you joined the picket line last week. How was 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 that? How compared to what's going on in Pittsburgh? Was that a little better? A little bit better? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's funny. You know, this is actually our twenty eighth strike this year, uh, one day uh, or longer um, in the News Guild, which is pretty wild to think about. That we're in August and we've had twenty eight strikes and kind of losing my mind. But yeah, I flew up there. <laughs> Uh, on Wednesday morning and um, just had a blast with people, you know, uh, they, we forget, you know, no matter what kind of worker we are, right. We forget that we're part of like a larger movement. Um, And so it was really great to talk to them and tell them and knit them together with folks from Fort Worth, Texas, who went on strike last year for 24 days or insider in New York city. who went on strike for 13 days earlier this year, or the folks in Pittsburgh who've been on strike since October. So it's really awesome to be able to knit together workers from across the continent. And they were really excited for that. So, you know, they've got their picket lines in downtown Toronto. They've been kind of moving around, but, but holding those picket lines, they went back and bargaining yesterday. We didn't really see a lot of movement yet. Um, but we're pushing for what, um, what teachers and nurses have already won, which is, you know, better, better wages. So we're going to keep pushing because we, we have to have, um, good journalism. And if, if Canadians don't fund good journalism, then they'll actually end up more looking like the United States of America, uh, which when you lose journalists, you, you start to have more chaos, uh, and the spread of more fascism. You, you got it. Okay, let's talk about organizing here. And I know you just love to organize and you're doing a great job. Uh, I was reading on your website, approximately 7,300 of the News Guild's 26,000 members have joined since 2018 at more than 120 newly unionized publications. Uh, Why don't you fill us in? I guess you got a couple of wins here. Asian Americans advocating justice, Cal Matters, and ProPublica. Talk to me about these three. And uh, and, uh, I I know it's not easy. Maybe you can reference uh, how this was accomplished. Go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, these were three big wins for us just in the month of August. Cal Matters, the nonprofit newsroom in California. Um, I used to work with these folks when I was at the Los Angeles Times. We would do partnerships. That's typically what they do. And they help basically expand the investigative abilities of a team or a project. And so Cal Matters is really great. It's about 40 folks uh, at this nonprofit uh, newsroom. They got voluntary recognition. The employer came in and was like, yep, you got the support. Let's just let's just move straight to bargaining. That was great. 
similarly, but in a larger sense, ProPublica is 135 folks. They also won uh, Voluntary Recognition, another nonprofit newsroom. These are this is a group that does really deep investigative reporting about like the IRS, about pollution and toxicity. Uh, about campaigns. Um, they are a big warehouse of a lot of like data backed people who do investigative work and they do partnerships too, but they also just have a really great website and databases that you can use to search. So it's really exciting to see ProPublica unionize. Um, you know, this started from a lot of them realizing that they, they like their working conditions and want to make sure that they don't lose their wages, benefits and working conditions, because that's what can happen. Right. And so we're finally getting to this point where people aren't just, you know, unionizing in the middle of a crisis. They're unionizing when things are decent so they can lock those things in and continue to improve on all of those different aspects of their life. So that's that was, I think, really special for both of those two groups. And then Asian Americans Advancing Justice, that. Uh, is a nonprofit advocacy group that advocates for uh, Asian Americans in the United States. Um, and uh, we represent different nonprofit folks who are outside of media as well, like at the Southern Poverty Law Center or the American Civil Liberties Union and different uh, affiliates for them. So it was great to see them as, as well join us because uh, they really just want to make their organization better. And they know that to do that, they need to unionize. John, if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, go a little further into the nonprofit sector, especially when it pertains to journalism. And and we're seeing a lot of that. You mentioned ProPublica, and I follow them all the time. Great reporters there. And I'm sure some of them probably came from some of the big newspapers that are no longer big newspapers because they shed their staff. But in your opinion, do you see that? to be the trend here because there is a thirst for information in this country unfortunately the information is clouded and confusing at times you got to dig through it to find the real facts in a story and blame a lot of that on social media but when it comes to the hard-hitting journalism that that you and i are probably so accustomed to is, is that the trend? Do you see that continuing down the road? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that we have seen, you know, in the last 10 years, a lot of digital only startups. And some of those can be, you know, for profit um, or publicly traded or privately owned. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking like Insider is a really big digital uh, digital only uh, profit driven model. But then the nonprofit space, I, I particularly love because, um you know, when I when I used to like a few years ago, I talked to a newspaper publisher and I was like talking about this this issue of like, oh, there's a lot of new nonprofit news organizations starting up. And he's like, yeah, well, we're not profit, but like just, you know, that's because we don't actually turn a profit, not because we're actually labeled as a 501c3 charitable organization. And I think it was hard for uh, the industry to realize that we could file under the rules uh, with the IRS as education under the 501c3 uh, um, uh, category. And and so that took a while for folks to realize that they could do that. So more and more uh, organizations have actually filed themselves as such. In fact, our strike publication in Pittsburgh is a 501c3. There are um, some really great organizations, uh, the nonprofit uh, News Institute, uh, uh, um, I'm sorry, the Institute for Nonprofit News, those folks actually have like a grouping of a lot of small nonprofits. These are groups that have like maybe two or three employees, but they're, you know, in smaller communities trying to build these out so they can take tax deductible 
contributions, but also get membership. Um, they really are focused on, um, on, on, on a lot of investigative reporting, which is really awesome. So maybe a bit slower than a daily newspaper and the drip drip that comes from, you know, like town life, uh, but they are able to go deep. And so there's been a really great explosion of them. And it's been nice to also have at the same time of, you know, more and more nonprofit newsrooms, seeing those workers realize that they should probably also unionize because similar things can happen there too. Sounds good. John, one more question here before we go. Uh, You and I talked about these hedge funds gobbling up newspapers, cutting down their staff. Anything on the radar right now that uh, we should be aware of? Yeah, I think, you know, continued vigilance against, you know, the the situation created by Alden Global Capital. I mean, that is the worst hedge fund. Uh, They bought up the Chicago Tribune, the Baltimore Sun, other Tribune papers. We've been in negotiations there for five years to get a contract. They are just not budging on so many different points. At the same time, the company extracts money and the hedge fund uses it to gobble up and buy mobile home parks and then become slumlords. So Alden Global Capital is truly the most evil. All right. One to watch, no doubt about it. John Schloys, president of the News Guild, cwanewsguild.org is a website for complete updates. You take care, stay safe, stay strong, and uh, enjoy the upcoming Labor Day holiday weekend. Okay, brother? I will. You too. Thanks so much, Flash. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go to the state of Montana. Check in with Bob Funk, who heads the Labor Lab. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. From the Golden Gate Bridge to the St. Louis Gateway Arch, the Sears Tower, and just about every building, bridge, and structure in between, our cities and towns wouldn't be the same without iron workers. With over 3,000 contractors employing more than 130,000 highly trained iron workers and 20,000 apprentices, the Iron Workers Union stands ready and able to shape the future of our skylines. Learn more at ironworkers.org. Iron Workers, the sky's the limit. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at uaw.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to uh, line number two right now. And joining us from Montana 
is Bob Funk. Bob is in charge of the Labor Lab. Website is laborlab.us. And he's here to talk about uh, what the Department of Labor did recently, publishing a rule requiring that all federal contractors, everyone, disclose their work with anti-union consultants and law firms in their LM10 forms. And boy, I tell you, there's a few people not too happy about this. <laughs> we're, we're talking about transparency, and some people just don't like that in America. We're talking about some big corporations. Bob Funk, welcome back to America's Workforce. And I'll tell you, we always get new listeners every day here on America's Workforce. Give us a quick uh, synopsis of what you do at Labor Lab. Go ahead, brother. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, always great to be on. Uh, Labor Lab, at its most basic, is the only nonprofit uh, watchdog organization in the country that is solely dedicated to uh, tracking and investigating corporate spending on union busting, specifically anti-union persuasion. Um, so, as that, since that's our job, we are very, very excited about the uh, new rule that uh, the Department of Labor has put forward, and uh, can't wait for it to take effect in just a few days. Now, now, did you have a role in this? Because I know you've been very vocal on this issue about uh, putting everything on the table, knowing what's going on here. So I'm just wondering, were you involved in, in making the Department of Labor go in this direction? Well, let me just say that we're very grateful that the Department of Labor has taken the step. Um, it's a great move. And uh, yes, we did. We had a petition that hundreds thousands, excuse me, of people um, signed, and uh, we also put in our own public comment regarding it, and we have been encouraging them to adopt the rule for the last year. Well, Bob, that's exactly what we want. We want some good friends in Washington that understand what workers want and need. So if we can get into these uh, LM-10 forms, why don't you give us a quick explanation of what they are, what you can find on those forms? So basically, an LM10 form is a financial report that any employer that engages in anti-union persuasion, uh, that is hiring consultants to come in and union bust, uh, has to file uh, within three months of the end of their uh, financial fiscal year. Uh, Now, we have a huge delinquency problem with these filings, and we have a huge compliance problem with these filings. The majority of employers that hire union busters don't file that. So that is definitely an issue that we need to take on, uh, take head on, and we're working to do that. Um, But the LM10 is basically what a company submits to the Department of Labor that lines out how much money they spent on union busting and where that money went. Um, Now, the Department of Labor is working to improve compliance, and we like to think that Labor Lab is a part of that by uh, doing a lot of the investigative research ourselves into who's not playing with the rules. But this rule change um, with the LM10 is is big by making employers, um, forcing employers under penalty of perjury to say whether or not they receive any uh, federal grants or contracts is a really big step uh, forward to actually enforcing an executive order that was codified actually under Obama, but hasn't really uh, um, been put to use to date, which would ban um, federal dollars from going to um, uh, corporations, companies that use that money to union bust. 
Yeah. Well, this is our money. It's our tax money, and they're using it to union bus. So we don't we don't want that. Just to be clear, if the company does not, or the contractor in this case, does not union bust, do they still have to file that form, or do they fill it out and say we didn't do anything like that? No, they they just if they if they hire a um, union buster. Um, they have, it's, it's only if they hire those folks. Um, I gotcha. and the problem is that a lot of the time there's no one checking to see if a union buster was hired, if the company ever actually filed that LM 10. And that's exactly the kind of work that we do. We do the research, we do the digging, and then we take it over to the department of labor and say, Hey, you got to follow up with these guys. Yeah. So, Bob, let me ask you this. Um, is the hope here, this is involving federal contractors, and if they're union bus, they got to fill out this form, is the hope that this would kind of expand to all contractors in, in the private sector as well? Is that a possibility here? Is this like a step in that direction? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely think that it should apply to all contractors. I think this is a first step. Um, but we have the intent there. The biggest problem we have now is actually enforcement of the laws. So um, it's great to have new rules on the books, but we actually have to enforce those laws. And until that happens, we're not going to really be able to expand it to any other contractors. So first, I think the federal government has to come down on companies that are using my tax dollars, my federal tax dollars to beat up on workers. I mean, let me just give you one example, if I may. Think uh, when we put out our report um, at the end of 22 of the biggest spenders on anti-union propaganda and consultants, number one was Amazon. Number two should probably have been Starbucks, but Starbucks is hiding behind an advice loophole that we're also trying to address, but I won't go down that um, right now. We've talked about that in the past. And then every, all of the other top spenders were hospitals. So who receives a lot of federal money? Hospitals. Yeah. And yep. is, are my Medicare dollars, are my Medicaid dollars going to pay some guy that's making $5,000 a day to beat up on nurses? that have already mm -hmm. been beat up enough, we deserve to know. And that's the intent of these rules. Now we just have to make sure that they're actually enforced and, um, and uh, made public to the public. Now, you mentioned Amazon. I know they're, uh, they're a big spender here. I see some numbers here, $4.26 million in, in one year. Um, it's absolutely ridiculous what they're doing. But they also, well, they are a federal contractor. They deal with yep. the taxpayers' money. So they're going to have to fill out these forms. Now, the date, the date I'm looking at here, is this correct? August 28th, when this goes into effect? And the second question here is, is there a way somebody can push that date into the future? Any any <laughs> thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So we are already going retroactively and looking back at past um, use of federal dollars um, because really those shouldn't have been used for union busting in the first place because of this executive order that uh, happened under Obama. Um, what, what will happen is that this really makes our work a little bit easier um, in, in tracking down and, lay, and focusing in on those corporations and finding out if those dollars that came from the federal government were used on union busting activities. Now, I would argue that 
once the money goes into the company, they can't really say, oh, well, yeah, we sock some of it away for this and some of it away for that. It's all corporate money. And so if you're getting even a dime from the federal government, that should bar you from any union busting activities. But this is the first step into really getting our hands around these folks who are abuse. I mean, the Amazon example is huge. Not only do um, do many of their employees depend on the social safety network, so they're, they're already a suck on tax dollars, but then they're turning around taking tax dollar contract money from contracts and using that to go and bust the workers that are just trying to make their lives a little bit better and get out of the social safety net. So it's a vicious cycle of our tax dollars funding violations of our fundamental right to unionize. Well, my hat's off to you and all the the team that you have put in place over there at the uh, labor lab. Again, the website is laborlab.us based in Montana And being very vocal on this issue, you and I have talked about this over the years. It's great to see that there's an organization. It's almost like a David versus Goliath here (laughs) against the the union-busting industry, which is so freaking huge. I mean, it's giant. I mean, there's law firms. That's all they do. That's all they do is union-bust, and and employers run to them. Yeah, we're talking about big employers. You mentioned Starbucks, Amazon. They're all using them, and for very good reason, because there's a lot of organizing going on right now, and they want to stop mm-hmm. it. They want to, they want to put out the fire of organizing. That's exactly yep. what we're talking about. So uh, all good news here, and hats off again to the Biden administration for taking the lead on this, and, of course, you being vocal on all this. So I have to throw this at you. I did this the last time you and I talked. In order for this to happen, you got to support organizations like the Labor Lab because we need we need you to unwind what's going on here for so many years. So can you uh, give a message to our listeners right now on how they can help you out? Always appreciative of this, brother. Very appreciative. Um, absolutely. Um, the majority of um, the financial resources that make this work possible, and there's literally no other organization doing this, comes from grassroots support. So you can go to our website and go to the donate tab. It all goes into exposing corporations that are spending uh, money and taxpayer dollars to bust unions. And if you're um, the, a member of a union, please ask your local to uh, send us a check. That's another um, where we get a lot of our support. And we're so grateful for the locals in every state around the country that are backing this work. All right, Mr. Bob Funk, thank you so much. Keep up the great work that you're doing, okay, brother? Thank you so much. Always great to be on. Again, that website, laborlab.us, laborlab.us. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Tomorrow, the president of the North American Building Trades, Sean McGarvey, and Ironworkers Local 55. Until then, all of you. Have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.